that we're starting a new sermon series this week, and I'm really excited about it. What did I call it? Wise Living. It's called Wise Living. And as I had mentioned, and I'm always grateful when I actually follow through with what I say, we're doing a series in the book of Proverbs. How many people have read the whole, all 31 chapters in Proverbs before? It's no shame if you haven't. I hadn't done it until very long ago. Um, we're not going to do every chapter like I normally do a book in the Bible, but we are going to cover the major themes that Proverbs touches on. Why are we doing Proverbs? Why are we doing Proverbs? Why did we go from the Gospel of John to an identity series and now Proverbs? Like, this is, is it random? Not at all. Uh, the the number one reason I want to do Proverbs and really why I do any book, and this is kind of a cheating answer because this is the reason why I preach any book, it's because biblical literacy matters. It's because biblical literacy matters. You hear about the educational system talk about literacy and math and writing and reading, and it's critical to get literacy levels up, right? In the church, it's more critical even that we get our literacy up in the Bible because that's the text of life. That is, that's what gives us hope and guidance and light and truth. And so biblical literacy, part of that is just becoming familiar with every part of the Bible, every section, every corner, every piece of history. Our goal is to become enriched with the content of the Bible. We just want to become uh, fluent in it. We want to become familiar with it. And it's my responsibility as a teacher to expose you to the whole counsel of God's word. That's a phrase that the Bible actually uses, the whole counsel. Another part of biblical literacy is to um, see and become familiar with different genres. Do you know what a genre is? Some of you are in literature, and I know you know exactly what that means, but genre is an important phrase that we need to be able to use in the church. Genre means what type of book is it? What type of writing is it? Because if you went into a, a house that was discovered buried under, you know, two centuries of sand, and you went through all their documents, you would intuitively recognize different genres of writing, okay? If you were in the kitchen and you found a book talking about different types of food and how much of each type of food to combine together and what heat to cook it at, you would not think that you had found the husband's love letter journal to his wife. Different genre. That might be a recipe book. So we intuitively understand genre in our own lives. And yet when we come to the Bible, we, we often don't apply those same types of thinking to different books in the Bible. We have, we have books that are apoc apocalyptic in nature. And that's, an, in fact, a genre that we don't even really use anymore as a culture. Apocalyptic books like Daniel, Ezekiel, Revelation... It's a type of genre that an author uses to describe realities in figurative and exaggerated sometimes language. Very different from, let's say, the book of Chronicles or Numbers, which speaks about uh, how many people lived in each different tribe. You have kind of a scientific uh, accuracy there that you don't necessarily find in apocalyptic writings. And that's not a mistake not a mistake. And so when we come to the Bible, we need to recognize there are different genres and we use different interpretive tools to understand them. Okay? And so when we come to the Proverbs, it's a different genre. It's called wisdom literature. And, and the, the Bible specifically, you could argue the whole Bible is wisdom literature, but 
the, the Proverbs, the Song of Solomons, and, the, uh, and Ecclesiastes are all written by the same author. And we see those, we collectively say those three books are like wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. What is wisdom literature and how do we read it? It's very different from how we read and apply the Gospel of John. It's very different from how we apply Romans chapter 12, like we did in the last two weeks. <clears throat> Continuing on biblical literacy, it's to strengthen our Christian worldview because it builds confidence in our canon. This is, the canon is the grouping of the 66 books together. It's to give us confidence that the canon, all 66 books of the Bible, do fit together. They're all supposed to be there, and they all have direct meaning on your life. We don't have to apologize or be shy or awkward about any piece of our Bible. And the more familiar we become with that, I think the better we are at describing the Christian faith to the world who needs it. Uh, why Proverbs, number one, is biblical literacy. Number two is that it gives us a language and a foundation for speaking about holiness and high living in our community. Let love be genuine. We talked about that last week. Does love, does genuine love mean you just back up, let everybody do what they want to do, what works for them, and that's just the most loving thing? Bible doesn't describe true love like that. The Bible describes true love as sometimes grabbing each other and picking each other up or sometimes convicting each other and having hard conversations about things that are going on in somebody's life. That's genuine love. It wouldn't be genuine love for me as a parent to say, well, you know, I just think, you know, my kids are just trying to get along and if they think that punching and hitting and screaming at each other is the way to resolve conflict, well, then that works for them. Genuine love says, no, there's a better way. There's a better way. There's a better way. That's genuine love. So the book of Proverbs gives us a foundation and a language and context and even a lot of really practical areas that we can learn to talk to each other about. Sometimes hard conversations, sometimes celebrating conversations, um, but nonetheless, Proverbs is packed with it. Why Proverbs number three is because I think that Adam and Eve, our first parents, failed to answer a fool according to his folly in the garden. And in so doing, lacking a fear of God, uh, they plunged humanity into ruin. And so for me, when I read the book of Proverbs, I see a restoration. I see a, a handbook for restoration of humanity. It's a path back to the garden. Now, now, we're not redeemed by what we do, but I think Proverbs speaks to the kingdom nature of God and, and, and how we get along as human beings. Proverbs says that the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. And when Adam and Eve failed to fear God more than they feared and, and listened to the serpent, um, they were taken off course. They were taken off of God's promise and his command. And so we as people want to be prepared for life. We want to be prepared for the foolishness that's going to come into our homes and into our minds. And we want to be able to answer foolishness according to its folly. We want to be, we want to be shrewd thinking Christians about every idea. Not letting anybody pull the wool over us and say, well, this is really what it's like. We say, no, we know the truth through God's word. So... That's why Proverbs. That's why we're going to do a series on Proverbs. And I'm not putting any limit on how long it's going to be. It won't be eight, two years like John, um, but it could be upwards of 10 um, messages. I don't know. We're, we'll see. But it's exciting. And I, I think once we start into this, I think you're going to get excited. It, it's a little bit addictive uh, in, in, in such a good way. The Proverbs just, I was talking to Dylan Hamill this week, and he said it's like an action movie where the first scene 
is like the most intense and then you're hooked throughout the movie. It just never lets you down. That's what Proverbs is like. And, and, and that's intense. So um, buckle up a little bit for that. So let me give you an introduction to the book itself. It is sort of the first. It's after the book of Psalms. It's written by Israel's third king. Israel was God's people, right? They were the Jews who had been redeemed um, out of Egypt, out of slavery. God made a people. He gave them the law. He gave them a way of living. He showed himself to their prophets. They knew him. He knew them. And they had a relationship. God had revealed himself to Israel. And Israel uh, wanted a king. They used to have judges. And then they asked to have a king. And they said, we want a king instead of um, these kind of rulers. And God said, and that's going to be a bad idea because if you choose to have a king, he's going to tax you in order to pay for his, like, isn't that prophetic, right? If you want to have a ruler, they're going to tax you. They're going to take your young men to go fight in their battles. And so Israel said, no, we want a king. And so Saul was chosen to be king. After Saul came King David. And after King David, we have King Solomon. He's the third king in the history of Israel. Israel did split, but at this time, Solomon was king over united people of God under, um, called Israel. Solomon was also the king who built the temple of God for the first time. There was a tent built in the wilderness where, where the priests would meet with God, but then a temple was actually built in the capital, Jerusalem. King David had turned Jerusalem into the capital of Israel. He moved the Ark of the Covenant there, and, and, and he made it the city of God, Jerusalem. And so Solomon, after David, actually built the temple. He, he actually constructed it. David himself actually wanted to build the temple for God. David said in um, First Chronicles, I think I was just reading it in my own devotions, and there's this beautiful chapter where David says, God tell you what, I'm going to build you a house because we all have all these fine paneled houses and you have nothing. So we, we're going to build you a house, God. And God has this amazing interaction with David where he says, David, I'm going to build you a house. And it's this beautiful chapter because God says, no, no, no. You want to build me a brick and mortar temple house for worship. You know, I appreciate that, David, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to build you a house. And it was a promise of a messianic house, a royal house, a family name. And he said um, that the heir to David's throne, his kingdom, his house would never collapse. It would never be washed away. It would never be removed. So God turns this promise of like, David's like, I'm going to build you a house. And God says, I'm going to build you a house. And he has done that. He gave to David an heir in Jesus Christ who is on the throne now and is constructing a house of the Lord. Guess what the stones are? Me and you. We are the house of the Lord that God promised he would build for David. Okay, I'm, I'm, um, that's, a, that's exciting. That's really cool stuff. Let's keep moving. <laughs> Solomon. And so God appeared to Solomon, David's son, later. And, and, and Solomon had become the ruler of Israel and God appeared to him in 1 Kings chapter 3. And God said to Solomon, tell you what, Solomon, I can give you anything you want right now. Like, I'm going to open up my treasury and you're heading into your kingship. What would you like? And Solomon says, I have no idea how to rule these people well. I need help. I need wisdom. Can you help me? God, can you give me wisdom for leading these people? And God says, absolutely. 
and he says, I'm so pleased that you chose wisdom instead of riches. I'm going to give you wisdom and riches. And God made Solomon the wisest man who ever lived and one of the richest who ever lived. And uh, so he rewarded him. And he gave him wisdom that was so attractive and so powerful that leaders from other nations, Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings chapter 10, she travels and she brings an army of, of wealth to give to him, spices and, and um, I don't know what else, but lots of old school type things that were really nice. And she came and saw Solomon and it says that Solomon, the Bible says that Solomon answered all of her questions. She just kept asking, kept asking, kept asking. Solomon had an answer for everything. He was wise. He became wise. He knew how to rule. He knew how to treat people. He knew uh, how to live together and how to rule a nation. So what I want to tell you about the book of Proverbs is that it's not a book uh, that was written so that you could develop just a personal piety. Just like, hmm, this, my life's just getting better. I'm becoming more wise. I'm becoming more holy in my life. I'm getting so much better at dealing with people. It's not just for you to be more pious, more holy, uh, better than somebody else. I used to read the book of Proverbs like that. If I just keep reading this and applying this, I'll become like super Tim. I'll become super spiritual Tim that I'm always doing the right thing with my money. I'm always uh, being sexually pure. I'm always uh, speaking the right kind of words. That's how I used to read the book of Proverbs. But what I'm learning is it's not a book about street smarts or even academic rhetoric. Like, this is just the wisest sayings you can find. It's a book written by a king who was wise to his sons to prepare them to become king. Read the book with that in mind. He is trying to prepare his sons to become king after him, to rule well like he thought he was ruling well. He was preparing them to rule and, and live wisely before the nation of Israel, who was God's covenant people. Um, that makes this book a proposition for obedience to God to receive the covenant blessing from God. If you've ever read through um, Exodus and, and, and God's giving of the law to Israel, he said, this is, this is my covenant with you. If you break my covenant, you'll be cursed. You'll be cursed. It'll be bad for you. But if you obey, it's going to be beautiful for you. I'm going to, get, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to keep your enemies from you. And the whole Old Testament is the story of Israel failing to live up to their end of the covenant until a son came named Jesus who finally kept the covenant and gave the covenant blessings to us. So, the book of Proverbs, then, is a proposition for obedience to God under the covenant of God. It's the way to live to keep the covenant. It's the, it's the application of obedience. And so he was writing to his sons, this is how you lead a covenant people in covenant blessing. I want the nation to be prosperous. I want it to receive God's blessing. Sadly, his sons uh, did not achieve this. After Solomon died, he was the last king over a unified Israel. Israel split into Israel and Judah, and they became two nations um, split. Obviously not God's intention, uh, but this was, this was the, the fallout of unwise and disobedient ruling. The king of, of Israel was actually the primary covenant keeper. He was supposed to be the kind of federal 
covenant keeper of Israel. You do what the king does and you'll be okay. He's supposed to set the example, right? That's what a wise leader does. That's what a good leader does. A good leader doesn't just rule with an iron fist. He leads with moral direction, moral example setting, legitimate. This is how you live. This is how you treat people. So if you ran into him on the street, he would treat you as if in the same way that you ought to treat your friends and family. There was no separate standard or system for the ruler. He didn't get to be disobedient and then make sure all the covenant people are. It started with the ruler, which is we see the same pattern in the church with Christ, right? The pastor's not the head of the church. The pastor is not the great example setter. Jesus Christ is. And so these sayings are not folksy superstition. Like, oh, if you just angle your way through life like this, things will go well. You can avoid disaster. You can avoid the disappointments of life if you just apply these things and hold your teeth right. That's not what Proverbs is about. It's a map for righteous living under God's covenant. And so we might be tempted to preach like this. Do these things, but we really know that you can't, so turn to Jesus for grace and forgiveness. Do your best to do this, but we all know you that we'll all fail, so just be forgiven in Christ. How, how, do, you, how do you apply a sermon like that? Go do this, but you'll fail, and then the, the application is just repent when you fail. Uh, that's not the power of the Proverbs. We preach it rather like this. Jesus is the exemplary king. He keeps the covenant and sets the perfect example. He is the wise son in the Proverbs. He is the good king. He is the diligent worker. He is the pure man. He is the good father. And he is also, as the New Testament teaches us, he is our vine. Which if we abide in the vine, we will bear much fruit. We will do the things that the proverb commands us to do as we abide in Christ. And no other way. That's why it's not folksy superstition. That's not why it's, well, if I just do these, if I apply these properly, then my life will go good for me. Instead, we abide in Christ. He bears fruit of obedience in our lives, allowing us to live in this way, though obviously imperfectly. And so we live as the people of God. So all in favor of pursuing wisdom? We can do hands here. Yeah. True wisdom. So, let's look at Proverbs chapter 1. And I'm not going to go, as I said, verse by verse through all of chapter 1. But we are going to dip into chapter 2 a little bit. But here's what I want you to see. First, look at the author intro. Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Now, if you knew, if you're Israel and you knew that Solomon wrote this, and you knew in your people's history that Solomon was the wisest dude who ever lived, that immediately has to grab your attention, right? that immediately says to you, this book's going to be full of stuff I need to know that I probably have not thought of myself. So that draws us in and draws the people of God in. Solomon, knowing that he was the wisest man, he identifies himself, also identifies himself as the son of David, which puts him as the heir of the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant was that God said to David, I will give you an heir to your throne who will never be moved. So Solomon puts himself in line with the messianic promise to David. And he also says, the king of Israel, the current king. So not only am I in line to a future promise of God, but I am the current um, king of Israel. I'm the current leader, and so I am the primary covenant keeper. He sets himself 
um, in those three ways in his trifold identity here. The book's purpose is laid out in verses 1 through 7. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand the words of insight, to receive instruction and wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. There's your thesis statement for the book right there. That's what these books are about. It's to give knowledge and discernment and wisdom and instruction. Wow. Treasure these words. Put these words into your heart to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity. So what does wisdom change primarily here as we see in uh, verse, verse number three? To receive instruction in four things. Wise dealing, righteousness, justice, and equity. What's wise dealing? It's how you go about your life. It's how you handle phone calls that have conflict in them. It's how you navigate difficult issues at work that you're not quite sure uh, what the right way forward is. It's how you approach somebody who might be a little bit um, mentally ill or, or in a difficult place in their life. Wise dealing. How do we interact with people? How do we manage our finances? How do we decide what to do in life? It's, it's wisdom in wise dealing. It's just everything that you do. Wise dealing. And then he gives these other three things. Righteousness, justice, and equity. Now, those are not just things that if you personally... Um, internalize, you'll be a better person. You'll be more equitous. You'll, be, uh, you'll have greater justice. You will be more righteous. These are principles that we all long to see increase as the kingdom of God increases. These are, these are things that belong to the kingdom of God. These are facets and characteristics that belong to the advance of God's reign, the reign of Christ, the lordship of Jesus Christ, righteousness, justice, and equity. These are things that we all long to see in society, in our courts, and in our institutions. These are global human values that can be found only in wisdom, but can be applied to every sphere of life. I just want to mention this word equity for a minute, um, because righteousness we know is, is, uh, is, is purity in the Lord justice is fairness. It's, it's right consequences for right sin. It's, it's the right consequences for sin. And it's also vindication for the innocent. That's true justice. But we also have equity. Now, in our society, we don't like the word equity. We like the word equality. We like the word equality. And I looked them up, and they're very different. Equity, equity speaks to uh, objective value to give equal opportunity, to treat people fairly and as equals. Equality speaks to qualitative, or, or sorry, quantitative um, sameness. And so in our society, we, we value and we treasure equity, the, equ- the opportunity of all people to have fair trial, to have a fair opportunity at a job. What we, what we cannot enforce what is not an attribute of the kingdom of God is equality, meaning that every person that applies for the same job, they do not all get it. That's equality, and that's not a value purported by Scripture because logic and physics uh, preclude that. And so we don't insist that everybody has the same amount of money, the same job, uh, the same car, the same size house. We don't insist on that because the Bible says that equity is the result of wise dealing, not equality. 
Equality is social management, whereas equity is fairness and social opportunity. So I wanted to address that because I think that's something that we confuse in our society. In fact, Jesus even said, you will always have the poor with you. There, there, is, there is not a great leveling out of wealth because of the advance of the kingdom of God. And that's okay. Some people are rich, some people are not. We can all live with what we have. Paul said in Philippians, I can do all things who strengthens me. I can be poor, I can be rich, I can be in prison, I can be free. God, whatever he has allotted me, I have the faith to live that out. So real wisdom is applied wisdom. That's what I want to make this point. Real wisdom is applied wisdom. It has real effects, it has real consequences in the real world. It's moral at its core. And so philosophy or wise sayings that don't, that is not concerned with right living is foolishness. It's hot air. It's vanity. Philosophy or so-called wisdom that is not concerned with how you treat your neighbor or how you manage your money is vanity. It's foolishness. Bible tells us that wisdom leads to righteousness, justice, equity, and wise dealing. That's true wisdom. Wisdom is life applied. Listen to this. It's the only book in the Bible that I'm aware of that is specifically addressed to young people, to youth. I don't know many youth groups that go through the Proverbs, but Solomon makes clear this is written to young people, to youth, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. If you're under 25 or 30 today, this book is especially for you. This is for you. This is written for youth. It's not written for your grandma, although it is, but it's more written to you. Because lest we think that the older and the wiser get off the hook in verse 5, it says, let the wise hear and increase in learning. If you are wise, you will also tune in because the Proverbs go on to speak later that a person who is truly wise will love being corrected. They'll not say, I'm already wise. I'm already there. I've already figured it out. A truly wise person will love you and give you a hug. Maybe not literally, but they will appreciate correction. Do you hear that? A wise person will not rebuff correction. Will not rebuff being told how to change, how to apply deeper wisdom. A person who thinks that they have attained ultimate wisdom and that there's nothing wrong is a fool. The Bible says that only the truly wise will appreciate rebuke and correction It's not for the wise to ignore, even though it's written for youth. If you are truly wise, you will lean in deeper and say, I need more of this. I need to to grow in my expression of this. Wisdom comes from fearing God. We see that in the text as well. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's written in the first chapter. Listen, friends, if you want to know how to live wisely, if you want to know how to live your life in the way that is right, it begins with one thing and one thing only, the fear of God of the Lord. If you do not fear the Lord, you can expect a life of foolishness ahead of you. No matter how much success you achieve athletically, academically, financially, no matter how well you have your life put together, if you do not have the fear of the Lord, you are living foolishly. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you have not started at the beginning, you cannot get on that path. There is no wisdom outside of the fear of the Lord. In other words, the Bible does not separate a fear from God from true wisdom. 
You can't ignore God. In fact, some people in our, in our society, in our academia, think that ignoring God and rejecting Him is the means by which they can become wise. You hear people talk about, well, you know, I grew up in the church, but, you know, I finally saw the light when I left. And they think that abandoning God has become for them a source of knowledge and truth. Well, now I know. Now I understand deep sayings. Now I understand human beings better because I've abandoned the notion of God. How foolish. How foolish when God reigns and created all things to say that wisdom can be found outside of him is narcissistic and crazy. And so I want you to be aware of that when you enter, especially young people, when you enter institutions of so-called higher learning and their foundation is the rejection of God, you cannot become wise by their instruction. You can learn great things about geography and astronomy, possibly, but you cannot grow in wisdom in the Lord by rejecting his existence. Absolutely not. Let's also be clear that to be truly wise in the Lord is the highest type of wisdom. The highest type of wisdom. Ephesians says that God has given Christ a name that is above every name, above every ruler and every authority. Christ is the highest court. And so if you want to be at the top, so to speak, of the intellectual chain, it's fear of the Lord. And you know what? Society will tell you the exact opposite. Christians are seen at the bottom of the intellectual food chain. That we are superstitious or we're, we're Neanderthal-like or we're, you know, we have old religion to just help explain away the world. Not true. All the greatest scientific discoveries in the world um, happened under a Christian worldview that God had created the universe, that it had laws that were to be discovered and then applied to science for progress, medicine. All these things took place under the worldview that Christ had ordered the universe in a very specific way. If the universe is random, then why invent the plow? Why would you invent and construct a plow when you have no idea if, if spring will come again? If the seasons will continue to change and be predictable for planting and growing and harvest? All the great inventions in the world depend on a worldview that Christ is at the center and that God is in charge. Wisdom begins by fearing the Lord. The context of the instruction, it's familial. It's father to son. I, I mentioned this in the, in the introduction, but I want you to see the familiar structure and nature of Solomon's instruction. He's not speaking as a wise political leader to his adoring audience. This is not like a campaign rally where he says all of his best stuff and the crowd cheers along. You know, listen to Solomon's great wisdom. He's speaking as a father to his sons, even though he's a king. He's not an academic philosopher before his adoring audience. He's speaking as a father to his sons. And I'm just going to fly through here and show you. Uh, 1 verse 8 says, Hear my son, your father's instruction. 2 verse 1 says, My son, if you receive my words. 3 verse 1 says, My son, do not forget my teaching. 4 verse 1 says, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. 5 verse 1 says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. 6 verse 1 says, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor. 621 says, My son, keep your father's commandment. 7 verse 1 says, my son, keep my words. This is a father pleading with his son and his sons to listen, not to forget, not to abandon. He also says, put my teaching like a garland around your neck, 
like a prized piece of clothing. Tie them around your neck and do not lose them. Do not abandon the teachings of the wise, especially when they come from your parents. Wise living begins at home, my friends. Don't ever outsource the instruction for wise living, which is fearing God. Let's never separate wise living from fearing God. Don't outsource the instruction for wise living to the school system, not even to the church congregation. Not even to the church congregation. The church is a collection of families. And wise living, wise instruction, fear of God begins at home. It begins at home so that when we come together, we celebrate what God is doing in our lives and we grow together in that. But parents, you are primarily responsible. Whether or not your children are in the school system, public, private, Christian, home, doesn't matter. All I'm saying and all the Bible teaching is here is that do not rely on that for the totality of your child's education. Because true education, if it does not include how to fear God and how to live, they're missing a massive piece on how to live their lives. If they are not receiving instruction for wisdom at home, then they are not being educated completely. Now, other people might be better at teaching math than you, and that's wonderful if they're able to do that in a school system. We're all for good schools. But do not, even if you bring your child here in Sunday school, and as good as that is, it is not enough. It is not enough if it is not consistently applied and retaught at home day after day after day. Deuteronomy talks about when I will rise up, I will speak of you. When we lie down, we will speak of you. When we walk in the way, we will speak of you. There's an ongoing, when you're shoulder to shoulder with your family members, you're able to just bring it up all the time. Little life lessons. You know, somebody takes somebody else's toy. You know how this applies to God? You know how God applies to this situation? You know how to deal with this? We need to be continually remembering to teach and instruct our children in wise living I also want to show that as a father teaches, we can see and hear a deeper sense of urgency and importance. Because this is not, again, a detached academic professor before a curious audience. A professor who's indifferent as to whether or not people actually live it out. A professor, and I saw this in university, their job, especially in first and second year, is to get up, discharge all the information, and then it's your job to... You can study, you can not study, you can fail, I don't care, right? That's not what this is like. This is a father who has a vested interest in his son, in the way his son will actually live. And so there's an urgency and there's, a, there's an emotional connection to this teaching, which is why there's no substitute for a parent's teaching of a child because nobody cares more for your kid than you. Okay, whether you think you've maybe failed as a parent, maybe you're, maybe you're in the upper stages of parenting and you think, oh, I've already blown it. Not so, because you still have an, an interest in your child that nobody else will. And your ability to teach wise living in fear of the Lord um, is still more powerful um, than those outside of your home. So again, these chapters lay out the blessing of wise dealing and also it lays out the consequence of foolishness. That's why the Proverbs are so good. It doesn't just say, oh, you know, if you blow it, it's going to be really bad. Here's the consequences for your sin, because that's scary, and sometimes that helps us avoid foolish living. To see the consequences before they happen. To look down the, the tube of your life, the decisions that you are making, and say, I can see where this is going. One of the things I'm trying to teach my children right now is that 
every little sin is a step toward death. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And so even if it's small, if it's a little lie, or if it's a rudeness, or if it's a, an exclusion of somebody, an unkindness, I, I try to get my kids to say, what happens after sin? What is the result of sin? And I don't know that they fully understand, but they say death. And I think that's wisdom, that sin leads to death. It may lead to physical mortal death now, but sin, if unchecked, will lead to spiritual death, spiritual separation from God. So we need to teach our kids, these are the consequences of sin, but here are also the blessings of obedience. We're going to get to that in a minute. Life and death are always before us as we live. Teach your children to choose life. I don't care if your children are four or 14 or 40. We need to speak, and this is what I'm talking about. This book is going to give us the language to speak about those choices and how to help each other make better ones. I just want to give you a, um, a brief run through and how to teach children about wisdom. Number one, pursue it. I have four Ps. Pursue it. Chapter 3, verse 13, and 4, verse 7. If I don't get a chance to read them, those are the, the message there. Uh, pursue it. 3, verse 13 says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. Pursue wisdom. 4 verse 7 says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Wow, the beginning of wisdom must be that you want it, that you're going to go after it. So number one, teach your child to pursue wisdom. Number two, teach them to prize it. Chapter 2 verse 1 says, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandment with you, making your ear attentive and inclining your heart, Yes, if you call it for insight. If you seek her like silver, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Treasure my commands. Teach your children to prize wisdom. That's also found in 621 and 72. I won't read those. Number three, proclaim it. Pursue it, prize it, proclaim it. Four, um, 20 to 23. I'm going to read that for you. It says, my son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my understanding. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. What the author is saying here is that there is an ongoing teaching element to wisdom. There is an ongoing reminding that has to take place. Pursue it, prize it, proclaim it. For we cannot move on from wisdom without saying this, practice it. Practice it. Pursue it, prize it, proclaim it. Practice it. It's not enough to just hear it. It's not enough to just think it. We need to practice wisdom in order for us, for it to have an effect on our lives. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. If you have come into the hand of your neighbor, go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Practice it. If you've done something foolish and there's something you can do to fix it, you got to go do it. You can't just say, oh, I, I understand now. We need to practice wisdom. We need to do the things that we are learning so what is wisdom? Let's talk about wisdom a little bit as we go through chapter one here. Wisdom recognizes and refuses temptation. This is starting down in verse eight. The enticement of sinners, your Bible might say, is a heading. Hear, my son, your father's instructions. Forsake not your mother's teaching. This is not just a father teaching, but it's a mother. 
My son, verse 10, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive. And whole like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. How does wisdom begin? It recognizes and refuses temptation. We need to recognize that as a Christian, opportunity to join in with sin will come. You are not shielded from the presence of temptation in your life because you are a Christian. Opportunity will come to commit and practice the most heinous sins that you never imagined and could not even describe. Listen to that enticement. Let us go ambush the innocent. Who does that? Who makes a plan to go ambush the innocent and rob them and kill them? Sinners. It's sad, but this is the way people often live. And you know what? Sometimes they're looking for help. Sometimes sinners are looking for a bigger gang to make themselves feel better about their sins. Isn't this true in high school? Well, if a bunch of us do it, we can't get in trouble. If a bunch of us do it, it can't be wrong, right? Gosh, the groups, the, the crowds that, that entice you to come along and do evil things. The writer says, my son, do not consent. Do not give your permission to them. Do not follow with them. See the evil behind the temptation. Because you know what? The temptation is called temptation because it's tempting. Right? We will have one purse. We're going to fill our houses with plunder. Temptation looks good. Do not let that fool you. Wisdom says, I see the evil behind what you're asking me, behind what you're offering me. I'm going to see through that to the evil motives, to the evil reality that's behind that. The theft, the murder, the violence, the debauchery, the sexual immorality, whatever is behind the temptation, wisdom sees that. Wisdom sees the good, the, 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 the tempting, the temporary And then sees the evil behind it and says, I'm not going to partake. I will not consent. The father says to his son, do not consent. He even says, hold back your foot. Don't follow them. Don't go where that temptation is leading you. Wisdom recognizes temptation and refuses it. You know what? We are all very good at discerning temptation, aren't we? God, I know, God, this is not what you want. I know you don't want me to go commit this sin, so I'll just close my eyes while I do it. We so often know what sin is and yet we do it anyway because we think one thing and we live another way. Wisdom does not just recognize temptation. It refuses it. Hold back your foot. Do not consent. For in vain they spread a a net in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives Such is the way of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes the life of its possessors. So see wisdom. See the end of what you have chosen. See the end of the sin that is tempting you right now. Look down past today. Look down past the immediate pleasure and see the end of that sin. It is death for you. It's not death for other people. It's death for you, no matter how good it feels in the moment. Death is the result of sin. Wisdom recognizes and refuses temptation. We need to apply the principles of wise dealing. We need to take control of our own choices and our own activity. You know why? Because nobody's responsible for them but you. 
Nobody else is responsible for your decisions, for what you do, than you. You have the power to hold back your foot from temptation. You have the power not to consent with evil. I have the power to reject and refuse evil by wise living, by fearing God. Now this, we have to understand. Fear of God alone, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of God alone has the power to inform your decisions and to help you actually make them. Fear of God alone will give you the power to make the decisions that Proverbs calls for. You know why? Here's a, here's a few other things that we base our decisions on sometimes. Personal standards. I would never do that. That's below me. I was not raised to do that. Don't you hear that in apologies when sports people commit domestic violence or they, you know, sexual immorality or something, and they get up in their press conference and they apologize by saying, you know, I wasn't raised this way. I don't care how you were raised. If you committed sin, that's you. So often we lean on how we were brought up or our personal standards. Like, that's going to guard me. I wasn't brought up to do that, so I know I never will. Not true. We see it over and over and time and time again in life. The way you were brought up, your own personal standards will not guard you against sinful indulgence. It won't. What else? Social restraints. Ooh, people look down on that. People look down on getting drunk before 10 a.m., so that's going to guard me from ever doing that. Social restraints. Like, that's frowned upon, so that's going to keep me in my little bubble of wise living because I know that that sin is actually frowned upon. Well, what if, what if it becomes popular? What if it becomes accepted? What if when that standard changes? What about pleasing others? Oh, I could never do that because my mom would kill me. My dad, if he found out I did that, that's what's keeping me holy. You know what? Under enough pressure, all of those things collapse. You know why? Because they've all collapsed in my life at one time or another, and you may have experienced too. All the things that you thought would guard you against sinful indulgence, they all collapsed. Do you know what never collapses? Do you know what actually has the power to guard you in your wise living? Fearing God. Knowing that God is before your life at all times. It's the only way uh, to, to, to sustain holy and righteous living. And you know what? Even when we fail, Christ's fear of God restrained him and made him perfect. That didn't make him perfect, but he lived out perfectly because of that. Now, wisdom offers an alternative, not just abstinence. Wisdom is not just a vacuum where there's no sin inside your life. It's just, oh, I just don't do anything bad. Wisdom offers an alternative. Look at uh, verses 20 and down. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out, she says, how long, O oh, simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? How long are fools going to love being foolish, wisdom says? I'm offering an alternative. I'm offering a new way of life. I'm offering an opportunity to repent and change. And you know what's amazing? She says, if you turn, in, in verse 23, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. What a promise of wisdom. I will pour out my spirit on you. Does that sound a little bit New Testament to you? 
Like you come to Christ and he pours out his spirit on you, makes his words known to you, empowers you to live by them. It's not just a vacuum with no sin inside it. It's a presence of wisdom, of God's word, of his presence, of, of, of himself, his character, the indwelling spirit of God that wisdom promises. But she goes on and, and she presents an urgency to her call. Let's not also miss that she, said, she calls out at the head of the noisy street. Make no mistake, wisdom is not the only voice trying to get your attention. There are a thousand million things screaming at you, maybe even from your pocket right now, calling out to take control of your mind, to get control of your devotions, to get control of your efforts and your energy. How's my social media presence doing? How am I doing on that portfolio at work? There are a million things that demand our attention and wisdom cries out at the head of the noisy street. Let wisdom's voice come into your heart. Heed the voice of wisdom. Though it is not flashy, it's not popular, there's not many hashtag wisdom posts out there, but it does not mean it is not the right way to live. Okay, it doesn't matter what the world is doing. It doesn't matter what all the other noise in the street is. Respond to the voice of wisdom. Friends, I'm calling out in urgency because not, not because I have done so well in this, but because if we collectively reject the things that distract us from wisdom and bring us into foolishness, we will become a city on a hill, as God described that we would be. And so there's a consequence. She says, because I have called out and you refuse to listen. I have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When ter terror strikes you like a storm, your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you. Okay, it's really bad if you ignore wisdom. It's really bad. And you know what? Wisdom wasn't hiding in a cave somewhere for you to come find her through hours of meditation and personal this and that and self-discovery. Wisdom is not a massive personal journey. Wisdom cries out in the street. Wisdom makes herself known. I'm here. Come listen. Come follow me. Come learn from me. I will pour my spirit out on you. And if you ignore that and calamity strikes... How many people pray for the first time when things go seriously wrong? Suddenly God's real. Suddenly God, suddenly we need help. Suddenly we need God to change things in our lives. But wisdom says, I called out to you a long time ago. Friends, call out when there's not a storm. Call out now. Call out for wisdom now. Because they hated knowledge and they chose not the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way. They shall have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. Fools are complacent. Fools feel nothing when wisdom calls out. Fools feel no different from a life of sin and a life of righteousness. Fools are complacent. They could care less about the difference between right and wrong. And the Bible says that they will die for their complacency. There is an urgency to the call of wisdom. Young people, have you ever heard um, the testimony of a person maybe in their 30s or 40s who talks about being a teenager, growing up in the church, walking away, going and sowing wild oats, abandoning God, turning to sexual immorality, turning to a life of, of 
fraud and theft and all the ways that we turn away from God. And how many times in their 30s and 40s did they say that life was empty? It was destructive. It was a high wave. I barely survived. And I came back to the Lord and he received me. That's why this book is written to the youth. It's because it's written to people who have not yet destroyed their lives by sin. That's why this is written to young people. You know why? Because if you're 50 and 60 and you're hearing about wisdom for the first time, sadly, your eyes are going to be open to the ways you blew it. And that's just the truth. Uh, that, that's not to say you are less than another person. But when wisdom opens your eyes, it is a bittersweet thing. You see your life for what it really is and it drives you back to the truth. So young people, listen to wisdom before your lives are destroyed by rebellion. There is no life outside of God. There is no life outside of wisdom. There's no life outside of fearing the Lord. You may think you'll find it. I was a teenager 10, 12 years ago. I worked with other teenagers. I worked with people younger than me. I've seen people at every spectrum of zeal in the Lord, loving it, complacent about it, walked away, loving a life of sin, depressed about their life of sin, rock bottom. I wonder if God will take me back. I've seen the whole thing, and I'm only 30. Imagine what you who are older than me have seen. Urge young people not to experience that spectrum. Don't destroy your life with rebellion. Heed the call of wisdom. See wisdom as an alternative to life destroyed by sin. See wisdom as your alternative. It's your path to, to a life that is full of righteousness, to a life that avoids the destruction of sin. Read that whole second part of chapter one, that it is, a, it is a wave, it is a storm, it is calamity. But whoever listens, verse 33, whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. That's not a, that's not a categorical, literal promise for now. Remember, this is a book of covenant blessing. Now, Christ has achieved and received the covenant blessing from God, but we also recognize that they are not yet fully applied, right? We are not yet fully glorified. We are not yet rid of our life and our flesh of sin. But this is a promise that will come to those who heed wisdom. Ease without dread of disaster. You know what the greatest disaster is? It's coming before the throne of God and having no answer for your sin. That is a disaster. That is a disaster for which we have no fix. Those who heed the call of wisdom will dwell at ease without fear of disaster, without fear, no matter what happens in life. I am secure. I have the Lord. He has me. Those who listen to me will dwell secure. Friends, listen to wisdom. And then the first five verses of chapter two kind of tie in with that. If you listen, you will know what true wisdom is. And so we conclude with this, will you call out for wisdom? Will you call out for wisdom? Not, not will you strive to live a life that is morally perfect. We cannot and we won't. And that maybe goes back to that first style of preaching. We will not achieve moral perfection by reading this book. But will we call out? Will we value? Will we listen? Will we heed? Will we receive instruction? I pray that we will. She will guard you. Wisdom will guard you. You will gain insight. You, you can restart your thinking and your faith in obedience to God. You can restructure your life to seek wisdom, to seek God's face instead of seeking entertainment and seeking the things that mute the voices of truth in our head. 
the way God wants to speak and, and help us. You will grow wise. This series is going to help us dig deep into life's most troubling and sometimes confusing dilemmas. Dilemmas of justice. Dilemmas of sexual purity. Dilemmas of relationships. And through this series, we're going to seek obedience to God. And you know what? He will make us wise. The book of James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. Friends, this is not beyond your reach. It's not beyond you. I don't care what mistakes you have made. I don't care how foolishly you have lived to this point. It does not matter because today wisdom cries out in the street. Today is a chance to receive the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of Jesus Christ. Today is an opportunity for that day. Do not look behind you, but look forward. When you sit in your seat and you think of your guilt, when you think of your failure, the only thing worse than thinking of your last 10 years of failure is to consider that you may experience another 10 years of failure and destructiveness. And so let today be a day where you restructure your thinking, where you allow yourself to be corrected and, uh, and taught by wisdom. And may God get all the glory because we are a product of his work. We're a product of his spirit indwelling us. And we then will become the city on a hill that we were designed to be. Let me close in prayer and we will close with a song.